Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. This week we're focusing once again, I'm afraid, on next month's election and in particular on how journalists and journalism students need to take care with how they handle opinion polls and voter surveys. We'll come to all of that in just a moment, but as usual, I'm joined by my MMU colleagues, Dave Porter and Jeremy Craddock. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. Dave, um... Quickly, just before we go on to the, the election stuff, what's caught, your, what's caught your eye today um, in the courts? Well, quite good timing. I'm teaching juveniles tomorrow to the second years. I'm going to show them the Jodie Chesney case, um, the convicted murder of two, the tr terrible uh, gang drug killing, um, and the fact that the 17-year-old was allowed to be named, obviously, yep. uh, under the crime sentence. Is that presumably what have the press would have applied for the anonymity to be lifted under uh, Section 45, Youth Justice Criminal Evidence Act. So a really good example of whereby, you know, a juvenile under 18 is named, um, seriousness of the offence, you know, known to the community, uh, near to 18, all the usual things which apply. And, um, and then the other case which came up this week, which uh, quite recently was the police officers. Yeah. Uh, who yeah. have, uh, the press applied to lift uh, anonymity order. Um, it must have been a Section 11, contempt of court act, for those who don't know, uh, real and successful application, but I think it was the Times, the BBC, the Guardian, mm. to name the two officers, I think it's two officers, um, they can name them but they can't give their addresses, yeah. um, uh, and of course Section 11s are very really for protection of blackmail victims to encourage them to come forward, but actually um, often used by defence, especially where police officers are involved, um, to blanket their ID, do the anonymity. Was, were you able to get to the bottom of why it was that the the, the anonymity order was, was well, imposed in the, the first place? Because it was be, was it about their their ability to work in future? Yes, it would have been. Usually for police officers, it is the case of they they work in environments where they're subject to reprisals or um, you know would be possible criminal uh, recriminations. Um, but ultimately, I think the law takes a fairly robust view of this. That uh, well, thankfully now we did have to. I presume the arguments held sway in the first instance, but after the representations by the press, you know, which would have been basically why should a police officer, unless, you know, there's specific reasons, maybe national security, why should a police officer uh, have a particular anonymity uh, bestowed upon them? I'm not going to go into the details of a case because it's active and contempt and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, but the principle is, is quite clear cut. I was looking at a case a couple of years ago from an officer, uh, I think it was in Portsmouth, who was given anonymity and he was involved in an assault and then again applied, press applied and got a section 11 lifted. Um, as I say, sometimes it's just partial, it's not a name, yeah. so it's a name but not an address. Not an address, yeah. which is Or a workplace, for yeah, example. Like yeah, like a partial yeah. victory. So uh, it's a good day, it's been a good week for press freedom, if that's how you want to put it. Yeah, good, good, okay. Well, um, we're, I should just explain, there's some, some chat going on in the background. We're back in the MMU uh, journalism newsroom, as usual, and there's lots of preparation going on for a couple of things to do with the election, but also some other stuff that we'll come on to, to later on in the programme. Because you may remember last week we were in here and we had an election special and we took questions from, from the studio's audience. From the studio audience. Um, of course, it's been one of the outstanding features of the last three and a half years that a whole lot of vital decisions 
in UK politics have been challenged in court, all the way from Article 50 to the power of the Prime Minister to prorogue Parliament, and this week, whether ITV was within its rights to invite only Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn to take part in Tuesday's head-to-head leaders' debate, just up the road from us here at the Salford Keys studio. Now, on Monday, Mr Justice Davis and Mr Justice Warby ruled that the court had no grounds to intervene because it was an editorial decision and ITV was not exercising what they called a public function, which made it open to judicial review. In essence, they said that the party should take the issue off to Ofcom and deal with it there. Outside the High Court, the Lib Dem President, Sal Brinson, said she believed it was a legal issue. The Liberal Democrats' position in this election and that of our leader is unique. Joe Swinson is the only leader of a national party fighting to stop Brexit. Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn should not be allowed to sidestep debating the issue of Brexit with someone who wants to remain, and ITV should not give them the opportunity to do so. That's why this is an incredibly disappointing verdict, not just for Liberal Democrats, but also for democracy in this country and for every Remainer who deserves to have a voice in this debate. It is worrying that the Ofcom guidance allows TV executives to decide, not the voters, whether the biggest issues of the day are debated openly in the ITV debate. This campaign is undeniably dominated by Brexit, the single biggest issue for our country perhaps in the last 75 years. This law needs to change. ITV needs to change. Joe Swinson and the Liberal Democrats brought this court case because our politics need to change too. Televised debates between political party leaders should be framed in stronger legislation. But more than that, our democracy should not be in the hands of invisible corporate structures and arrangements for such debates should always be accessible and transparent. The judges also refused the two parties the right to appeal their decision and said they'd release the full reasons for their judgment later on. But for the SNP, their Westminster leader, Ian Blackford, said it meant Scottish voters were being treated as second-class citizens by ITV editors. I really do have to express on behalf of the Scottish National Party severe disappointment. This is a democratic outrage. Let's remind ourselves that the SNP have won the last three Scottish elections, the last two Westminster elections. We are the party of government in Scotland. The last poll in Scotland showed us with a 20-point lead against our leaders' challengers. The Labour Party in fourth place. It is simply not on when we face the possible scenario of a hung parliament that the SNP that could be in a balance of power situation in Westminster are being frozen out of this debate by ITV and the other broadcasters. That is a failure to take account of their proper responsibilities. That's Ian Blackford from the SNP. Now, Jez, you had a debate with some of your students um, just yesterday, ahead of the, the, the ITV debate, talking about that High Court decision and some of we the other did. issues around yeah, it. Yeah, it was very timely because we were, we were covering the Ofcom code this week, so it fell really nicely for us. Uh, so yeah, we discussed the uh, the judge's uh, decision and, and you know the reference to the fact that they they felt that ITV were not uh, performing a public function uh, and, and saying that really it was something to be considered under the scope of the Ofcom code. Um, but as we, we sort of had a little bit of a discussion around why did the Lib Dems, why did Joe Swinson 
go for a high court judicial review rather than taking it directly to Ofcom. And we obviously came to the conclusion that Ofcom can only consider complaints after a parent after the broadcast. Event, which is essentially what the judges told them. Exactly. You have to wait until it's done. So, and clear that would have been no you know, victory for, for the Lib Dems, really. Um, oh. It was interesting that, that ITV had the separate interview programmes later on in the evening, yes. didn't they? They interviewed yeah. Joe Swinson and Nigel Farage and the And Greens Nicola Sturgeon as Nicola well. Nicola Sturgeon, of course, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Students, the students felt that ITV actually should have had more um, uh, of the leaders on the one debate. That was their personal uh, feeling. But... Um, but obviously Ofcom says that, you know, such programmes only need to have the designated oh. uh, representatives, yeah. I think, yeah. meaning the main parties. Yeah. Um, but clearly, yes, an editorial decision by, by ITV. So I guess um, it's controversial. I mean, I suppose Ofcom's position and ITV's position will be that over the course of the campaign, mm. everybody will get a shout, you know, yeah. and everyone will take part in, in various televised debates. And yes. so, you know, there isn't, there isn't really a problem. I think ITV's... Um, ITV's position was that, well, these are the only two people who stand a realistic chance of becoming Prime Minister. Yes. That, yeah, I think the bookies' odds are 33 to 1 that Joe Swinson would make it to Downing Street. Yes. So they were just being realistic and saying, well, this is a prime ministerial debate. Yes. But then I guess there's another discussion to be had about whether that really is should be part of our, our election system because we don't elect prime ministers. We elect candidates that, and individual yes. constituencies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although interesting, so. last night I noticed that they were introduced as, would you vote for this person? Well, actually, we don't vote for Prime Ministers, as yeah. you quite rightly say, Pete. And I think it's a kind of, maybe uh, a sad reflection of the first-past-the-post system that we're still mm. mired in, and maybe that, you know, that the it's quite easy for the media to have this prism of which to view the political you know, landscape, yeah. and, um, you know, kind of business as usual. But, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I guess it also is a reflection of the state of, of British politics at the moment. And, you know, the last election, 2017, <coughs> was very much a personal battle between Theresa May and Jeremy uh -huh. Corbyn. Yeah. And, was, and yeah. the Lib Dems, for example, the only person they put on their battle buses and election posters, apparently, is Joe Swinson's face. And so yeah. they're, they're always yeah. guilty, really, in some ways. Sort of <coughs> personal integrity of... The uh, party leaders was a big thing last night, wasn't it? With Very much uh, so, a, lot, yeah. a lot of the questions were sort of couched around that subject. Um, so yeah, it was uh, an interesting one. Yeah. So uh, we ran a, a, a separate debate with the first years uh, with our journalism, mm -hmm. media, and society group about the election debate, and then we ran a, a kind of a, a, a party leaders press conference, and some we had some pollsters and some fact checkers uh, among the students doing some work on that. So that turned into quite a productive session, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. and the whole fact check thing has uh, been thrown into the spotlight yes. uh, yeah. today with the. Uh, with the Twitter handle. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see what comes of that, actually. I'll give, yes. that, I'll give that a couple of days to settle. Yes. We might come mm. back to that next yes. week because mm. there may well be more social media stuff that we can mm. have a look at next week. Uh, yeah. So, uh, But remember, for the moment, uh, you're listening to Bang to Rights, the, the Bang to Rights podcast from the journalism department at Manchester Met Uni. Remember, you can contact us on Twitter at RightsBang. If you have a view on all of that debate or any of the election matters you'd like to look at in the, in the next few weeks, or do tell us if you'd rather hear about anything but the election. Because, as they always say, the only poll that really matters is the result from 650 constituencies across the UK. But in the meantime, journalists will be talking... What
But in the meantime, journalists will be taking a magnifying glass to all sorts of opinion polls and surveys, from national polls to the granular detail of some of the most marginal seats we have at Westminster, where majorities are measured in everything from a few dozen to the most marginal of them all, North East Fife, where just two votes separate the SNP and the Liberal Democrats. So amid this blizzard of facts and figures, is there a risk of journalists losing their way? Is, it's one of the reasons why the independent press regulator Impress has been working on a guide to polls with the Market Research Society to try to explain the possible pitfalls and to point out best practice when it comes to stats. I've been speaking to Impress's Complaints and Investigations Manager, Lexi Kirkconnell-Kawana, and I began by asking her if it was a coincidence that they decided to bring out the guidance now, right in the middle of an election campaign. It's serendipitous, but not exactly a coincidence. Um, at Impress, what uh, we do as an independent press regulator is we set standards for journalistic ethics, um, and that includes producing guidance and best practice notes for journalists to uh, look to for guidance on, on topical um, or particularly uh, thematic issues. And we did anticipate that there would probably be an election coming up. We were aware that uh, there had been a sort of call for regulators and the press and market researchers to work together to produce some guidance that came out of uh, House of Lords Select Committee report on the politics of polling. And so what we wanted to do is produce a piece of guidance that was sort of quick and easy for journalists to use that had lots of uh, useful and practical tips in it on how to report accurately and responsibly on re uh, reporting polls. And, uh, and as it so happened, uh, an election was called uh, we'd organised for a public consultation to be launched on the 6th of November and lo and behold, uh, that was the day that the election campaigns commenced. So we think it's definitely a great opportunity for journalists to, to look to the guidance and resource now that there are a lot of polls and poll trackers flying around uh, to, to help them and to be a useful tool when reporting on reporting on these issues. Yeah, so hopefully you, you'll get some uptake from it. But um, just following up on, the, you, you mentioned the, the House of Lords um, Select Committee that had made some recommendations about polling and so on. Have you, as Impress, have you been receiving complaints about the way that polls and surveys and so on are, are covered by, by any of your members? Well, we certainly do receive complaints about uh, issues of accuracy uh, when it comes to polls, and but just research data more generally. So, so we we know that there are are some issues around what steps should be taken before you report on something in order to ensure that it's accurate. Reporters aren't statisticians; they aren't market researchers, but they should be working with those that are producing research to ensure they're not misleading leading, misrepresenting or distorting the outcomes of, of research in their reporting. In terms of in, in complaints that we've had to deal with, it's, it's really been around that issue of misrepresentation and distortion. So what we require and impress is that you, you can take, you know, whatever partisan view of the facts uh, that you have, uh, you can report on it in a partisan way, but you can't misrepresent or distort the underlying facts that inform that worldview. And and the vast majority of complaints that we've dealt with on this matter, and we have two two published adjudications on this, is that get your facts right, um, your opinion and analysis of those facts. You know that's your editorial discretion, but whatever sits underneath it, you need to you need to report on accurately. And you, you've got. I'm, I'm just looking at a copy of the guidance now, and so you've got a, you've got a roadmap about what to, 
what to look out for, what to what to avoid, and then there's also you you also talk about how to how journalists can can look at the facts, get them accurately, and then put their their analysis on top of it. I mean, what just to, can you can you just outline what your kind of good practice is and what your warning signs are that people should be looking out for? Yeah, well, certainly um, a big a big issue when a piece of research comes along is that one we want to ensure that people are looking at who commissioned the research, um, what's the arrangement behind the research. Often research is paid for, um, and 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 who pays for that does have a vested interest. So we want to make sure that reporters are, are, are looking at that, getting that verification right. We want them to, if they don't have all the information in, say, a press release that comes out to them based on a piece of research, for them to ask and request for more information, such as technical notes. And we want to make sure that they're accurately reporting on the actual research outcomes and not just the headlines or uh, the potential uh, spin or of, of, of the top lines of a press release. So look at what questions were asked, look at what the sample size was, is it representative of a target audience, um, and then look at what the findings were um, based on the questions asked of that audience and report on that. Don't just report on the on the top lines. So, so we think that there are some key do's and don'ts, and we hope that we've set that out really clearly in the guidance. Um, but really what, what it is, is it's about um, journalists using their shrewd scepticism um, when it comes to getting press releases out and actually looking at the data itself and not just at the top lines. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that we encourage our students to do all the time is not to take the material in a press release for granted, but try to look whenever they can, look for the original material and sort of unpick that rather than, than relying on what's in the press release and the spin that the press release might put on that, on that data. Yes, yeah, certainly. And we agree that, that, you know, there are some key questions that people need to ask about the research itself. They need to look at, you know, who who's undertaking the research. They need to look at the audience, the target audience, and they need to look at what the evidence actually is. Analysis of that and the commentary that sits on that can be useful, but it has got a slant and a framing, and again, that might be related to who commissioned the research in the first place. So look at, look at that raw data. Okay. So, Lexi, I mean... Given the timing of all of this, which you said is a coincidence, but it's fortuitous because hopefully it will mean that, as you said, that, that journalists will be looking at this uh, with, in, you know, in a bit more detail, a bit more attentively than they might have done otherwise. But what do you, are there any kind of general lessons that you can pull out from the, the, the work that you've done with the, uh, the MRS as well about that, that journalists and journalism students might apply to how they report on the election and how they look at uh, opinion polls in, in the lead up to, to next month's um, voting? Well, certainly what we want people to think about are the organisations that are actually producing this yeah. research. So that's what's really great about doing a partnership with an oversight body like the market research, uh, sorry, like MRS, is that they, um, they are able to direct you and point you to the reputable organisations that are putting out good quality research based on regulated methodologies or the rogues out there that are producing, um, you know, 
information, top line, headlines, uh, and, and, and aren't actually a regulated entity um, and therefore have no accountability um, in terms of the research that they're putting out. Uh, we, we would really encourage uh, uh, those that are looking at research and polls to look at, again, who's produced it, are they identifying that a reputable polling company is behind it, and if not, um, should they, you know, should they take what has been reported on at face value or should they dig deeper? And is there, did, did the MRS give you any idea of, you know, is, is there a kind of kite marking or something that if people want to, to verify that this is a reputable polling organisation, is there something that people can quickly look at to see whether they are or not? Absolutely. So the Market Research Society uh, requires um, all of its company partners to register with it. What we also say is to look at organisations regulated by or recognised um, that have codes of practice associated with them. You can also report polls that you are concerned about to the Market Research Society code line and they uh, have an investigations team that can look into those as well. Okay, so just just very briefly then, where um, where can people find this guidance then if they if they want to have a look at it? So the Marcarisha Society have an election polling hub on their website, uh, and we have it on our website as well, um, which is impress.press. And what we have done is we've uh, done a consultation, a very short, rapid-fire consultation under under these circumstances uh, to to get people's input in on the guidance, and we'll be issuing a final guidance document in the coming days and circulating that among our members and other relevant organisations. So you can find it on our website, you can find it on the MRS Election Hub website, and it will be being circulated amongst um, lots of relevant journalist stakeholders in the coming days. Okay, great stuff. So, uh, and, and actually the, the consultation finishes today, doesn't it? So, um, yes, that, it does. Be out if you've got any time. last minute submissions, please get them in to us. Okay, great stuff. Lexi Kakonal-Kawana, thanks very much indeed for coming on Bang to Write. Excellent. Thanks so much, Peter. Lexi Kirkonnell-Kawana from Impress, and I'll put a link to those Impress MRS guidelines on today's show notes. Do check them out when you have time. But before we wind up for today, Dave, Jez, what's coming up for the students the next week? Uh, well, we're heading into that period of uh, assessments, Pete. Uh, I'm going to give my final one tomorrow, as I say, to a second use on juveniles, and then it's head down, revision mm. <laughs> for tests. Yeah, and uh, next week in Law and Ethics, it's the last taught subject. The students will be relieved to, to know. Uh, we're doing online media law, and then after that, it's revision in preparation for the, uh, the assessment. Yeah, and one of the reasons that we're here in the newsroom, Dave, is there's a bit of planning going on for what we're calling the Industry Day, uh, or yes. the, the Bulletproof Graduation Day. Tell us a little bit about okay, that, because uh, while you're doing that, I'm going to be at a conference of the National Council for the Training of Journalists yeah. um, talking about, well talking about podcasting, actually, <laughs> talking about this. But tell us about the Bulletproof Graduation Day. It's our first industry day. We're holding it with our sister department at our school. It's a day-long event. Uh, in the morning, we've got uh, lots of careers at workshops. In the afternoon, we're having bespoke panels. We've got two panels for journalism. First one concentrating on, on me, uh, print and digital print, principally. We've got the um, Sunday Times, uh, MEN representation, uh, Mad Bible and Huff Post, and then the second one's going to be looking at um, broadcasting, radio yep. and TV. We've got uh, ITV News, got BBC, got local hits radio. Uh, so we've got 
and, and plenty, smooth radio as well. And smooth. Well, I was going to say radio. we've got quite a few alumni, mm. so we've got industry guests, but we've also got a, a good smattering of people, as you say, working at Smooth, working at Mad Bible. It would be great in, to hear their experience, yeah. you know, what, what mm. 18 months after they That's graduated right. and finding themselves in And it's a really good opportunity newsroom. for our present students to, to quiz them, yeah. but also to, to network with uh, these top industry guests, ask them the questions, how do you break into the industry, what are the skills needed, what's the state of the industry. It's going to be really exciting. Good, good. We'll look, look forward, forward to it. To it. And, and hopefully we'll get some material for, for a podcast, yes. which will be kind of towards the end of term, probably before we close down um, this session for this season mm -hmm. for, for uh, Christmas. Remember to tweet us at uh, Rights Bang if there are any issues you'd like us to cover in those future episodes. Remember also, please subscribe to Bang to Rights. You can search for us on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, and we'll drop straight onto your podcast feed. Or, of course, you'll find us on the Northern Quota SoundCloud feed, and that's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. We have been Bang to Rights. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Pete. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.